0: As I was just up here, I heard the musicians uh, talking about that song, Isaiah 12. It's one of my favorite songs, and it's one that uh, a friend of, um, of a number of ours wrote here. He lives in San Diego, plays music at a different, uh, different church here in San Diego. Um, and just a, just a great song. Before we begin, let me uh, Let me pray. Our Father, we have come here today to sing your praises and to come and to approach you and know how near you draw to us. We've come because you promised to feed us in this place with the sustaining power and goodness that's in your word It tells us of the truth of who you are, how you love us, What Jesus has done on our behalf. We open our eyes now today to see uh, wonderful things and understand those things from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting uh, Genesis 12 today. 12 to 50 is a long passage of scripture and our approach, as we've uh, talked about the last couple of weeks, is going to be something unique. I don't do things unique uh, lightly unique things tend to take people uh, and creative solutions when it comes to teaching god's words word oftentimes lead people into uh, dangerous places dangerous situations i'll explain a little bit at the beginning of the teaching uh, why i'm doing it this way and what i'm doing but here's what we are doing what we are doing and that is for about 15 minutes probably a little bit briefer than that today we're going to i'm going to retell the story that's contained in genesis 12 and 13. i'm not taking any liberties to add somewhat realistic fictional characters to the story to make it more interesting i'm just telling the story that's in the bible i haven't done this a lot today but i plan to do it later if there are portions of the story that are brought out more fully in other parts of the Bible, I will weave those into the story. And also at different parts of the story, I may change the order of the sequence that I go through the, uh, the, the story from what the reading is in the scripture, so that we can ease our way into it a little bit. Today, I'm just going to follow, basically, the, the path of the text as it's laid out in the scriptures. So, if you want to open to Genesis chapter 12, you can see, but even by the the chapter headings, sort of where I'm going. And we're starting in chapter 11, verse 27, and going on to uh, the end of chapter 13. So, end of chapter 11, verse 27, down to the end of 13. Now, we're not reading. And what I would encourage you to do is, if you have questions, just look down at that point, but really pay attention to the story. Engage the story right now. I've included in the first question in the discussion questions uh, a, a question, what did you learn or hear new for the first time today? Don't feel like you have to take notes in that section, but just as you hear I'm jot down to something to jog your memory. We'll keep that question throughout the series. Ready? Here we go. The goal was Canaan. Canaan sits on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. The terrain looks very desert-like, what many of us are used to here. They were coming from Ur, where the Chaldeans lived, a place that, for whatever reason, they felt like it was time to leave. Maybe God had already called them, but it's not quite clear when that all happened. But here they were, with a 1,500-mile journey ahead of them by foot. Their immediate family, some others around them. It's not quite clear how many they had when they left Ur. They took a route that wasn't as the crow flies, because if you go as the crow flies from Ur to Canaan, you have to cross through desert. As one friend put it one time, if you take that route by foot, you die. Instead, they followed the fertile crescent up the Euphrates River, and about halfway into their journey, about 700 miles, They stopped at a town called Haran. Haran was at a crossroads for trade. It was a populous city at the time. It was a prosperous city. And they found a place to live. Terah was a grandfather. He had Three sons, but sadly the youngest had already died. Nahor was the middle son, but he doesn't play into this story much. In fact, he's not mentioned again. Abram was the oldest, and this story is primarily about Abram and his wife Sarai. Now, this is a little bit confusing, because the youngest brother, Haran, had three children before his premature death. Haran's name is the same as the town name, actually, it's slightly different, but when you hear it in our language pronounced now, it sounds about the same. So not to be confused, the town isn't named after Haran. He died before this move. But before his death, he had two daughters named Milcah and Iscah. In a strange twist, Milcah ended up marrying her uncle. But that's a whole other story about why that happened in those days. Iscah was the other sister, and then there was a son named Lot. And Lot is an important figure in this story because he stays with Abram, all the way through the journey. Terah stayed in Haran. He never made it to Canaan. Again, it's not quite clear whether he died before they left or after they left. Most likely, he died after they left and went to uh, and, and Abram and, and Lot went to Canaan. The move to Canaan that stopped in Haran included grandfather Terah, grandson Lot, and father – no wait, not father Abraham yet, just Abram, not a father, no children because his wife had not been able to conceive, even though she was now about 65 years old. It's tough to say who all was with them when they set out, but they had they had been successful in their 30-so years in Haran. Now they had gathered together people who were in their household not born of them. They had acquired all kinds of livestock and and, uh, and wealth, and with this they set out. Abram was 75, Sarai 9 or 10 years younger. Terah stayed in Haran, and Lot went with his uncle, Abram, not the one who married his sister. There doesn't seem to be any good reason to pick up and leave Haran. Life was good. There was no famine in the land, as far as we know. But there was one good reason for them to go, and that was that God himself had come to Abram and spoken in an audible way. Now, this wasn't something that happened often, even in those days. And it's worth reading exactly the words that God spoke to Abram, translated into our language, of course. But these are straight from the record, the historical record. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I quote that here. Well, because when God speaks, it's important we listen, but also because it's such a central part to this whole story that we're going to look at over the next few weeks and the story that you and I are part of today. So Abram and Sarai, they picked up and left Haran and Abram's nephew Lot went too and they had acquired all these animals and and people along with them. Maybe some of them were slaves and others were just hired workers. They came into the land of Canaan. They found a place to pitch their tents near this town named Shechem. They were foreigners. And so they had to set, set up camp outside of the city. They found a place, but it wasn't their land. It doesn't belong to them. Many nomads wandered in the land at that time and would set up tents, but they were probably pretty unique in the amount of wealth that they had in pitching their camp there, their tent there. There's an area that had trees, water, and God came and appeared to Abram again there, and he gave him this important promise. I will give this land to your offspring. Now, you know that Abram didn't have children at this point. So to hear that he was going to have land given to his offspring at this old age is an unsettling thing. It's the first mention of this this, uh, this, this promise it was through Abram's offspring that this blessing that he mentioned earlier is going to come. Offspring's an interesting choice of word, isn't it? It's one that we don't use oftentimes in our normal conversation today. But it's interesting for this reason in particular. It's not singular or plural. Just tuck that point away for a minute. We'll come back to it. Abram built an altar there and he worshiped God. He burnt some animals on his altar and some of them he probably burnt all the way. And some of them he burnt just enough to eat. He roasted them. He didn't stay there long. He moved about 20 miles further south, built another altar there near a town named Bethel. We don't really know why he moved. Probably there were some pressures. And then he kept moving still further south to an area that's called south. In the Hebrew language, it's called the Negev or Negev. It's a very desert-like region, but it probably had some more vegetation and water in Abram's time. Abram and Sarai and Lot never had a place of their own. They were nomads setting up camp outside of cities and always a bit unsettled. So when a severe drought came to their new place and the animals were struggling to find something to eat and the people were struggling to find something to eat and to drink, they looked for the closest supply of food and water they could find in abundance. And that was all the way down in Egypt. And so they kept traveling further south. And at this point in the story, Abram does something that's shocking. Going into the nation of Egypt, this powerful superpower of the day, he recognizes that he's at risk, not just because he's a nomad and asking for help, but because his wife is beautiful. And kings in that day and princes in that day, when they saw a beautiful woman, they wanted that woman, and they oftentimes took that woman by force, even killing her husband to do it. So Abram concocted a plan, and he told told Sarai to say, I'm his sister. My sister. And sure enough, when they went into Egypt, the princes in Pharaoh's court raved over her beauty, and Pharaoh, like Abram had predicted, took her into his house to be one of his wives. And this is even worse, Abram took gifts from Pharaoh because Pharaoh took Sarai to be one of his wives and he kept quiet. Sheep, oxen, donkeys, even male and female servants, even camels, which were kind of a luxury of the day, an extreme luxury of the day. Abraham was being treated as a foreign king with respect when he did the most disrespectful thing of all, but who came to help Abram and Sarai and a lot more people as well, namely the offspring that he was promising, but God himself. Where Abram failed to protect his wife, God protected her. Everyone in the palace got sick. It was a plague that prefigured many other plagues that would come upon Pharaoh and his nation later in history, in the time of Moses. Seeing the power of their God, Pharaoh didn't even try to take any of his gifts back from Abram. He just went to Abram and said, why would you bring this curse on me? And he sent him out of the country. And so Abram, now with even more wealth than he left Haran with, comes back into the land of Canaan, rich by local standards now, passing through the south and set up their rather large camp again near Bethel, the place where they had built that second altar. Now there was a new problem. They had so many animals and flocks and wealth and people that there wasn't room for everybody. The shepherds started to fight with each other, they quarreled, and the herdsmen as well. And the fights grew to a point that was intolerable, and Abram and Lot came together because they had their own possessions, and it was those groups that were fighting against each other mostly. And Abram and Lot, they talked and they said, well, it makes sense for us to separate now. We've been together all the way through, but now let's let's separate. And Abram, perhaps in a sign of generosity, gave Lot the first pick of places. And Lot looked out, and he found the Jordan River Valley, which has lush vegetation even to this day. And probably in a selfish move, move, he said, "I'll I'll take that. Turned out to be not the wisest move, because many other people wanted that land, and he was pitted against many other rivals right away. That's next week's story. But God after this took Abram aside and he told him to look around at all the land he could see and then some. And God reminded Abram of that promise of offspring and extended his promise even further and he said your offspring would be greater, will be greater than even the number of the dust on the earth. The grains of sand. But of course, Abram and Sarai still had no children. They were getting older. Abram and Sarai moved again just a bit further south, but not quite to the Negev. And like he did twice before, he built another altar there near a town called Hebron. That's the end of the story. You can follow along, read it. hope you found something new in the hearing of that story. Why would I do this format? I said I'd answer that later, and a few reasons that I tell that story that way. One is that for some of us, it's the first time we've heard the story. And it helps to hear stories in modern language, helps to bring them to life. For others of us, we're so familiar with the story that we hear it read and it just passes over us. And maybe you heard something new in there. And if you heard something new, go back and read it, and make sure it's there. As we go forward, I'll try to print in the bulletin if I pull things in from other parts of scripture so that you know that I'm not making things up, but that this is coming from God's word. Second reason why I want to do this is because I'm actually following a biblical principle that you see in the New Testament especially, and that is when teachers would stand up to teach, oftentimes they would summarize some portion of Israel's history, some portion of the Old Testament, and then explain it. Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches a sermon, and he tells this summarized version of... That, that includes this story. Writer of Hebrews does the same thing. And next week we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews. So I'm not making this up. I'm actually following the principle of biblical teachers. Oftentimes in the New Testament, you see the Old Testament read a portion of it and then applied. And explained. Even throughout Israel's history, the historians would oftentimes retell the history of their people. Now, this uh, this means a, a couple of things. One is that there's oftentimes at least one corresponding passage to most of the sections of the Genesis story. So each time we look at this, we're going to look at a corresponding passage, maybe more than one, to this story. Today, that passage is Galatians chapter 3, and if you want to, you can turn over to Galatians chapter 3 right now. Another reason is so that we can better understand how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. And some of the time, the New Testament authors challenge us with their interpretations. Sometimes it even seems like they take liberties with the Old Testament text. For example, today, uh, we're not going to read this portion, but in Galatians 3.16, in Galatians 3.16, it says, Paul says, you can look with me here, we'll read this straight out of it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many. By the way, that is an intentional uh, use of uh, a non-word, offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. We are going to look at what that means here today. But if you read that, that should be a little bit unsettling, because if you know the Old Testament word is not specific to the singular or plural, you say, how does the Apostle Paul even know that? Now, I'll repeat that I'm not unaware of the risks of taking this approach. In retelling a story, it's impossible to not inject some interpretation of the story. And you heard that today. I can't pretend to not be doing that. I can only assure you that I will try to correctly interpret the story as I do it, as I go through it. And and I'll invite you to read the story beforehand each week. Next week, we'll primarily look at chapter uh, uh, 14 and a little bit of 15, probably. So let's look now at Galatians chapter 3. Again, just 10 minutes here. Galatians chapter 3. And I'm going to read from verse 5 through 14. That's what's printed in your bulletin. A little bit of context. The Galatians were tempted to look to their works, the following of God's law, to be the assurance of their being included in God's family. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith." In this passage, Paul is referring to many passages from Genesis, not just what we read today, but you should recognize immediately that use of the word bless and curse repeated throughout this passage and being such a central part of those words I read that were straight from God, speaking to Abram. Go from your country, and those who bless you, I will bless, and those who curse you, I will curse. It's a reference clearly back to Genesis 12, but also to Genesis chapter 15, and even to Genesis chapter 22, and so we'll keep coming back to this passage from Galatians. The clear and obvious point of this passage is how we find our justification before God. What makes us lovable by God? And our temptation is always to think that we are lovable to God when we are doing good things because we know and experience that we we feel like we're loved by other people when we're good to them. And when we're jerks to other people, oftentimes we experience that they withdraw some portion of their love. With really good friends, even when we're jerks to them, they keep loving us. And with God, even when we're jerks to him, he always keeps loving us. And so the apostle Paul points back to the person of Abram who we see right off the bat in the story was not always the most loving person. That story of going down to Egypt and what he did with Sarai is intentionally placed in the first chapter so that we can see that God didn't pick Abram because he was the best guy in the room. So that we can see how God works good things even through broken people and rescues his people miraculously at times and continues to accomplish his purpose generation after generation when it seems like all the cards are stacked against us, are stacked against his people. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a quote from Genesis 15, 6 that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. It says exactly that. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this is a legal term. That is, a judge standing in front of somebody who's on trial and declaring that that person is innocent and can go free. It doesn't mean necessarily that they are perfectly innocent, but it's the judgment rendered that impacts the rest of their life, their freedom, or their enslavement, their imprisonment. And when God calls somebody righteous, we know that oftentimes it's not because of their righteousness, but we also know that it's not a misapplication of justice, it's because of his mercy that he works through sacrifice. And that sacrifice of animals in Abram's time, in the time of the temple, has culminated in the sacrifice that Jesus offers for us, who pays the price of our guilt so that God can rightly say, we are justified, righteous. He says, through Abraham, God promised that blessing not only to Abraham, but to all families and nations of the world. The writer of Galatians here says that that's a promise that can't be annulled. It's a promise. It's not based on anything we do, including the marks that mark us off as family. Circumcision is going to play into this. And it was this physical mark that marked people as people of sons of Abraham, daughters of Abraham, family identification. But this is a promise. That's not even based on that, and that plays into the book of Galatians over and over. You you read Galatians, you think, why are they talking about circumcision so much? Well, it's it's because we're always tempted to want to find human things that mark us as family members of God. And God always needs to remind us that it's not those things that mark us as family members of God. But it's just the belief that God has called us his sons and daughters and that he's made a way for us to remain his sons and daughters. Third thing that he says the promise is fulfilled through one offspring in chapter 16. I'm going to give you a little preview of where we're going with this. It takes a little bit of investigation, but in Genesis chapter 22 verses 17 and 18, there's something of a repetition of the promise that he gave in chapter 12. This is God again speaking directly to Abram, now called Abraham. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now don't hear me wrong. There is a place for obedience to God. And in fact, what disobedience to God leads us to is a fleeing from God, a running away from him, a rejection of our family inheritance. And the writer of Galatians is so concerned that we understand what it means to have an inheritance from God and the importance of not losing that inheritance, of not saying to God, I don't want it, curse you. The importance of being blessed by God. But hear this very clearly, and this is what the writer of Galatians brings out in verse 18 when he adds this promise. You notice that this promise, this part wasn't in what we read from chapter chapter 12. When we get to verse 18, he says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's interesting to find in the Hebrew grammar. It's more than just the word offspring. It's the whole context. But in this place, he's talking about one offspring. I'll bring the evidence for that when we get to Genesis chapter 22, but he's talking about one offspring. And so here's what he says. And in your offspring, namely Jesus Christ, all of my promises will be fulfilled. Salvation will come to all the nations of the earth. And that's exactly what we see when Christ comes, is that the gospel is proclaimed to many nations and goes global. And it's not because we've obeyed his voice, but it's because Jesus has obeyed God's voice. And in that righteousness of Jesus the hope for all the nations is realized in a way that it could never be realized by a righteousness of Abram or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or David or Solomon or any of those other great figures in the Old Testament. And it's the only place that we can find our hope in life. It's the only place that we can find our full assurance. And we are creatures who are prone to want to find assurance. Acceptance. In all kinds of other places. And the best At least the place where it seems most fun to find that assurance of acceptance is when we're doing good stuff. When we're living up to our expectations. When people around us appreciate the work we're doing. When we come to the end of the day and we feel like that was a productive day. But the good news of the gospel. The truth of the Christian religion is that that is not why God loves you. And God loves every one of us only because He said He was going to love us. And He chose us and He called us out, just like He did Abram. And that's a love that sustains us not only when we're doing well, but when we're in the darkest, deepest points of our life, whether it be some kind of sin that we're caught in and we can't escape or that we're loving. It's a place or, or in some type of depression or overwhelming feeling because the circumstances of work or family or, or, or whatever it is are just weighing on us so heavily. When we feel like we want to do something meaningful in life, but our career feels like a dead end and we don't have the skills to go forward. When we feel like we're failing in all of our life goals, directions. The story of Genesis is about God leading us to a place where it culminates in chapter 50. I just did a funeral on Friday for a retired police officer. I said this is the second most profound verse in all the scripture, Genesis chapter 50. The whole book of Genesis is leading up to this point when Joseph, the great-grandson of Abram and Sarai, meets his brothers when they come to him now again when another famine hits Canaan and they had sold Joseph into slavery, and there's no reason for Joseph to love them. No reason for him to do good to them. But instead, Joseph models God, and he welcomes them in, and he says, what you intended for evil, God has attend- intended for good. And because of that, and because of the position that Joseph had in Egypt, that line leading up to Jesus, that could have been wiped out if the famine would have taken the lives of those 12 people, was sustained, again, miraculously. And the promise continued. That's the point of the story of Genesis. Now the details of it are important and will help us understand a lot more as we go. But that's a good place to stop today. Let's let's pray. Father, thank you for this your word and for your love that is steadfast and for your plan that is fulfilled in Christ. And for the salvation and love you have shown us in Christ is only received by faith. Help us to live that out in our lives by believing your words. In Jesus' name, amen.